welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 149, Reborn. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. I'm sorry if my voice sounds a little off today. I'm a little bit sick, and it probably doesn't sound too off to you guys, but I can definitely tell a difference, and maybe if you were comparing, you could, but probably you won't be able to. So today, we are going to talk about rebirth. Rebirth is quite literally why we're here. Two episodes ago, we talked about John the Baptist and the experience that he had baptizing Jesus, and this week we learn how Jesus taught Nicodemus about baptism. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were a religious party among the Jews who pride themselves on strict observance of Torah. Now remember that Torah is the first five books in the Old Testament, the books of Moses. The Bible Dictionary says this of the Pharisees, The tendency of their teaching was to reduce religion to the observance of a multiplicity of ceremonial rules and to encourage self-sufficiency and spiritual pride. They were a major obstacle to the reception of Christ and the gospel by the Jewish people. The Pharisees' power and control of the people were threatened by Jesus, and they play a major role in the conviction and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. So not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, again from the Bible Dictionary, because the Bible Dictionary is your friend. It's awesome was the Jewish Senate and the highest native court in both civil and ecclesiastical matters. Under the presidency of the high priest, it regulated the whole internal affairs of the Jewish nation. Nicodemus, therefore, was undoubtedly very rich and very powerful. But despite all of this, we have a beautiful interaction between the Savior and Nicodemus. Obviously, there was something very special about Nicodemus. We don't really get a resolution to this conversation that they have about exactly what happens to Nicodemus, but we do see him pop up a couple other times in the account of Jesus Christ's life. Nicodemus defends Jesus in John chapter 7 to the Pharisees. Nicodemus also attends the burial of Jesus Christ with Joseph of Arimathea, bringing a hundred pounds of spices to anoint the body of Christ. From the reading I've done, the average amount for a typical Jewish burial was about one pound. And for people of great significance and importance, they were honored with additional amounts. Josephus, who is a really famous historian, once noted that an important figure was honored with 40 pounds. So here we have Jesus Christ honored with a hundred pounds of spices from Nicodemus. Enough spices for a hundred people. Now, I think from those two additional interactions, we can discern what Nicodemus thought of Jesus Christ. And if anything, at the very least, I think Nicodemus loved Jesus Christ. So let's read their conversation. The meeting we read about happens at night, and I think that that was probably done so that Nicodemus wouldn't be seen by the other Pharisees. Now, as I read this, some of the clarification that I will give, I got from the book, The New Testament Made Easier, written by David J. Ridges. Okay, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, which rabbi was a respectful term and significant that Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, would use it to address Jesus. We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Makes you wonder what miracles Nicodemus witnessed, right? 
Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is confused. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Why is that? It's because without entering onto the covenant path, one cannot qualify to be taught the things that they need in order to continue to progress. If you can't obey the basic commandment to be baptized, you're not going to be able to continue to move on. Jesus continues, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And according to David J. Ridges, he says, Promptings come and inspiration is given. We don't demand it or control it any more than we control the wind. But it does come, and it comes according to the will of the Lord. I love that explanation. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Starting here in verse 11 through verse 21, it seems that Jesus is quoting scripture that Nicodemus would recognize. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Here Christ is testifying that he is the Son of God. Continuing, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's explaining to Nicodemus that he must be crucified as part of the atonement. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And eternal life refers to the highest degree of glory exaltation. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now starting in verse 18, we have a Joseph Smith translation with a significant change. It says, He who believeth on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, which before was preached by the mouth of the holy prophets, for they testified of me. The part that has changed is that last section, which is significant because Christ is clearly telling Nicodemus that he is the Son of God. Now, he talks about condemnation in there. What does condemnation mean? Brother Ridges describes condemnation interestingly. He says it is a halt in spiritual progress. We all know that exaltation and eternal life is eternal progression, the ability to become like God. So it makes sense that condemnation would be being stuck or limited in progression. Continuing in verse 19. And this is the condemnation, the reason that they are condemned. That light is come into the world, meaning the gospel is presented to them. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I want to read that really quick without my inserts now that we kind of have some clarification. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In other words, they are condemned because the gospel is presented to them and they loved darkness rather than light. 
For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Meaning, people involved in wickedness won't come to the light because they don't want to face the consequences of their sin. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Meaning that his deeds are accomplished through God's help. Wasn't that such a beautiful exchange between Christ and Nicodemus? It must have been an incredibly powerful experience for Nicodemus, considering what we know about how he defended Jesus Christ and participated in the burial of Jesus later. It must have been impactful. My favorite thing in all those things that were said is what Jesus says in verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Sometimes we focus on the condemnation, right? I think the world focuses on the condemnation and forgets about the salvation part of it, that that is the focus, not the condemnation, that salvation is the intent, is the purpose. I think our brains really like to latch on to the condemnation toward ourselves and others, and we pridefully struggle to let go of the shame, even if we've been forgiven. Have you done that? I know that we all have. And as a quick aside, as it applies to us, sometimes things that I have done or said pop up and bother me, and I wonder if I have really been forgiven. And the scripture that always pops into my mind is Doctrine and Covenants chapter 6, verse 23. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? When I think back to the times when I undeniably felt the Spirit witness to me that I was forgiven, I return back to my faith and trust in the Savior that He has taken that from me. And I refuse to hold on to the shame because that's not from God. And isn't it funny that either way we're going with this, whether we feel shameful and we want to be forgiven for a thing, we focus on the condemnation. Or if we're being wicked and we don't want to turn from our ways, we focus on the condemnation. If we're repentant, we're worried and we we don't feel like we're good enough. And if we're not repentant, then we feel self-righteous and prideful and think that we know best and that, that that's not fair. So it's kind of tricky to not focus on that condemnation part of it. Let's move on to being born again. In verse 5, it says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Baptism, rebirth, becoming new creatures. He creates in us a new heart. That's ideally what that end repentance process is supposed to bring, right? Not shame, but a new heart, an ability to move on, a new creature, We become not the person we were before. A few scriptures about rebirth. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Mosiah 27 verses 25 through 26. And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not, that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. And thus they become new creatures, and unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Elder Bednar said this, 
we are instructed to come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny ourselves of all ungodliness, to become new in Christ, to put off the natural man and to experience a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Please note that the conversion described in these verses is mighty, not minor. A spiritual rebirth and fundamental change of what we feel and desire, what we think and do, and what we are. Indeed, the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ entails a fundamental and permanent change in our very nature, made possible through our reliance on the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. As we choose to follow the Master, we choose to be changed, to be spiritually reborn. And after we come out of the waters of baptism, our souls need to be continuously immersed in and saturated with the truth and the light of the Savior's gospel. Sporadic and shallow dipping in the doctrine of Christ and a partial participation in His restored church cannot produce the spiritual transformation that enables us to walk in a newness of life. Rather, fidelity to covenants, constancy of commitment, and offering our whole soul unto God are required if we are to receive the blessings of eternity. I would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of His salvation, and the power of His redemption. Yea, come unto Him, and offer your whole souls as an offering unto Him, and continue in fasting, and praying, and endure to the end, and as the Lord liveth, ye will be saved. Man, I want that. Don't you want that? I want that newness of life to come to me daily. And in order to do that, our souls need to be continuously immersed in and saturated with the truth and the light of the Savior's gospel. Partial participation will not do. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be on the same spiritual plane as every single other person, but you need to be all in. I need to be all in. Living the gospel of Jesus Christ requires sacrifice of self. It requires a heart that is willing to yield completely to the will of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39 says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Our life is not found within ourselves. We are entirely lost and inadequate without him. Our progress is non-existent without him. Our true joy is never found without him. If we seek a fulfilled life outside of him, it is absolutely and completely, factually unobtainable. With Him, He creates in us a new heart. With Him, we can choose to lose ourselves in Him, to allow our will to be swallowed up in His. Through Him, we can find what fills the hole in our souls that cannot be filled by any other cheap substitute. When Satan was cast from heaven, forever halting his own progression, painfully leaving him without a body, he rebelled not because he disagreed with the morality of the Father. He fell. No, he didn't fall. He jumped forever out of the presence of our Father because he worshipped self. He knew his plan wouldn't work. He wanted glory and power for himself. He fell because he was unwilling to submit to the will of the Father. He wanted things his way. He wanted his pride and his ego above even his Father who created him. He chose that pride and ego above even reason. He knew that his way wouldn't work. We often think of satanic worship as creepy rituals and symbols. But the actual doctrine of the religion that Satan teaches is that the most important God to worship is the false God Satan himself fell for, the God of self. Christ teaches the exact opposite. This doesn't mean a rejection of self-love, but the first and greatest command 
is to love the Lord thy God, and the second is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two laws hang everything else. Christ teaches us to lose ourselves in the will of the Father, just as his will was swallowed up in the will of the Father. This is the beauty and the joy of the gospel. This is the rebirth Nicodemus is so beautifully being taught during this sacred encounter with your Savior. Elder D. Todd Christofferson has taught, Being born again, unlike our physical birth, is more a process than an event, and engaging in that process is the central purpose of mortality. Engaging in that process is the central purpose of your life. Are you engaged in that process? If you feel that your heart isn't in that place, know that you are not alone. Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are anxiously, lovingly, and longingly engaged in your salvation. They have a good plan for you. The only thing left as a variable is your agency, something that they will not take from you. Will I choose his will over mine? Will you? Because the rest is already taken care of. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.